Would you remain standing and join me in prayer? We just saw uh, Moses encounter God at the burning bush, a passage of scripture we're going to look at here in a moment. God reveals himself there as a consuming fire, a compassionate savior, and a commissioning sender. And so would you just join me as we pray for God to reveal himself to us the same way. God, we, we do stand before you as a gathered people, gathered in your name and because of who you are uh, because you have sent your son to live and die and rise again for us. That, that's why we're here. That's why there is an us. It's because of you. And as we reflect on the words we heard read just a few moments ago uh, from Exodus chapter 3, where you revealed yourself to Moses for the first time by name from the, the, the image of a consuming fire, and we see how holy the ground was and how Moses cowered. God, we recognize even this morning that as we gather in your presence, we come before a God who is a consuming fire, one who is unapproachably holy, far more so than we are. God, we confess that. We, we agree with that as your people this morning, and we recognize that if we fully understood how holy you are and how holy we are not, we would probably completely fall apart. And so, God, we acknowledge you this morning as the great I am, the consuming fire, before whom everybody must bow. At the same time, God, you reveal yourself, even in the moment of Moses' holy fear, as a compassionate Savior, one who will not only come to, to save his people, but who uh, repeatedly says, you, you've heard their cries, you understand their pain, you hear, you know, you care about them, you care about us, and, and you are seen to be the one who is approaching us. God, we thank you for your compassion for us. We don't deserve it, but we acknowledge it. We praise you for it, that you would understand, as you've said in your word, everything that happens to us, that every one of our days were written in your book before there was yet one of them, that you have numbered every hair on our heads, and that every tear we have ever cried, you have captured in your bottle. God, you know, and you care. And you, the unapproachable God, approaches us. And Father, you give us finally a divine commission. <laughs> you not only told Moses what you were going to do for your people, you sent him. And in like way, you send us. You, you give a meaning and a purpose to our lives, having approached us and made us holy through your own sacrifice so that we can be with you. You then send us on mission. You, you define a new purpose for our lives, which is far greater than any purpose we could have apart from you. That we confess sometimes we, we lose sight of that purpose. We, we fill our lives with other um, places to find purpose. We seek purpose and meaning in other places. And we acknowledge that, that that is sin, that when you have come and given us the great purpose of our lives, the only purpose that can truly satisfy, our part is to embrace and to say, yes, Lord. And so we invite you, compassionate Savior in consuming fire, to forgive us and cleanse us where we have sought purpose elsewhere. I pray that even now, this morning, and the rest of our time, here you would reveal yourself to each person in a new way, in a more clear and more accurate way. Help us to see you as you have revealed yourself in the Bible, where we need to see you, and God, only you know where that is. Help me to see you more clearly as I leave this place than I did when I came in. I pray that the same would be true for every person in this room this morning. God, we need a big vision of you. We need a right vision of you. And we need to respond to you for who you are. So do your work within us and unite us together more deeply as a people because we see you in all your glory. 
And we pray all these things in your name and for your glory, in the name of Christ, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. And if you have a Bible, I do want to encourage you to grab it and turn to Exodus chapter 3, where we're going to continue our journey that we started this past week in uh, the book of Exodus, this past Sunday. As I was preparing for this morning, an image came to mind that I saw, maybe you saw it several years ago too on the news sites. Uh, It looked something like this. Uh, That is an apartment building in Shanghai, China that in 2009 fell over. The entire 13-story apartment building literally toppled over and landed on the ground almost completely intact. Um, thank God it was still under construction. It was almost finished, but people weren't living in it yet, or that could have been disastrous. Sadly, there was one construction worker inside at the time who was crushed to death and killed in what was a horrible construction accident. Later investigations revealed, uh, determined that that the problem was that during the construction, they had uh, excavated huge amounts of earth and piled them up right next to the building instead of moving them further away. That was problem number one. Problem number two was during the time that the the building fell over, they were excavating underneath it to clear out an underground parking garage. And so the combination of a lack of soil under the building's foundation and pressure right next to it literally shifted the soil, moved the foundation under the earth, and literally just kicked the building's foundation out from underneath it, and the whole thing toppled backwards. You don't need to be a civil engineer to understand that if you want your building to stand firm, you need to make sure it's on solid footing, way down at the foundation, even down below the part that you can see. That's probably the most important part, the below ground part, how secure and solid is that foundation. And as it turns out, that's a lesson, and this is an image that that probably applies to a lot of things in life. If you really want to succeed, it's probably the foundational things, sometimes the least visible things, that are the most important. That probably does apply to a lot of things in life, and it applies to our relationship with God as well. That's a lesson that Moses was to learn in the passage that we're looking at today. Last Sunday, we started this series of sermons through the Old Testament book of Exodus. I mentioned then this is um, arguably the most foundational book in the entire Bible because it takes so many of the themes that are revealed in Genesis, the Bible's first book, and it gives them a shape and a direction that the rest of the Bible will just carry on and will not change. Exodus sort of lays down the rails that the rest of the Bible runs in, and everything that we learn about God is shaped by this book. Today we come to one of the most, uh, one of the better known passages in this book, and there are several well-known passages, uh, thanks in no small part to Charlton Heston and others who made movies that you may have seen about this some time ago. Everybody under like 40 is going, what are you talking about, you know? There are many well-known stories in Exodus. Today is one of them, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, where where God not only um, commissions him to become the mediator between himself and his people, who he's about to rescue, but we learn something even more important than that in this morning's passage in chapters 3 and 4. We learn that in order for Moses to be a mediator for the Israelites, he's first going to need a mediator himself, and that mediator comes in a very unexpected form. The whole point, I think, of these two chapters is simply this. 
in order to join God in what he is doing, we need a mediator to remove the sin in our hearts, the very foundation of our lives. Only then can we build a life where we are joining God and serving him. So if you're in Exodus chapter 3, we pick up the story there. Uh, Time has passed. The Pharaoh, uh, from chapters 1 and 2 that we saw last week, the one who tried to kill Moses when he was an an infant child, has died, and, and God is now on the move. Many years have passed, an undetermined uh, period between chapters 2 and 3. We're not given the number, but, but some time has gone on. And at the end of chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we mentioned this last Sunday, God uh, remembers his, his covenant. He says, all right, I've heard my people's cry, and I'm going to rescue them. That's how chapter 2 closes, and that's the opening sort of scene for this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1, we begin with uh, Moses, the central uh, human figure in our story, in a place called Midian, keeping the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, if you're not familiar with ancient uh, Near Eastern geography, and who is, Midian is, we all know kind of where the Nile River is, if you've got a rough picture in your mind, that's where Egypt is at. Well, Midian is west of there. It's actually on the other side of Mount Sinai. That's really the, the significant geographical detail here. You got Egypt, you got Mount Sinai in the middle, and you got this place called Midian. That's where Moses ran to, and it turns out he's built a life there. He, he's, he's grown up there. He got married there, and from what little we're told, it seems like a perfectly happy marriage. He's, he's had kids there. He's raising a family. Uh, we encounter a man who's, um, he gets along with his in-laws. In fact, we find him working in the family business, tending the flocks of his father-in-law. Life for Moses in Midian is, is pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, Moses is raising a family. He's going to soccer practice. He's building his 401k. He's, maybe some of those details looked a little different back then, but that's, that's kind of where we find him. He's, he's living life, and he's perfectly content to do so. In verse 2, the Bible notes he takes the flock to... Um, a place sometimes called Horeb, it's Mount Sinai, it goes by both names. So he's, he's kind of a little out in the wilderness where they would take flocks to find pasture, and he's actually up on Mount Sinai. And, and the Bible specifically notes that this is the mountain of God. It's drawing our attention to the fact that, that this is the very place, uh, the end of verse one there, that the mountain of God, this is the place that Moses is gonna bring the Israelites back to later. We'll see that story in chapter 19. We'll get there just before Christmas time. And here he's, he's doing his thing, and all of a sudden he runs into God, who in this story sort of interacts with Moses in a way that's maybe best typified by, by a phrase that C.S. Lewis used, where in his own conversion, he basically said, I was really happy being the king of my own life, but God showed up as a transcendental interferer. And Lewis says, I didn't like that. I, that was the core thing I wrestled with. I did not want to surrender to God. And I finally had to come to recognize that God is God and I'm not. God interfered with C.S. Lewis's comfortable life and changed him forever. And that's what God is doing to Moses here. He's just shepherding the flocks. He's just doing his thing. And then poof, the bush goes up in smoke. And he's like, well, that's kind of different because I'm sort of out here in the middle of nowhere. It's not like there's cities around here where people are lighting fires. And the more he looks at this burning bush, he's like, hey, it's not burning up. That's kind of cool. He looked, and behold, the bush was uh, burning and yet not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Modern translation, what the heck is that? That's cool. 
if he'd had a phone, he would have been Instagramming this immediately, right? Like, check this out. There's nobody around to check it out. So well, I'm going to go check it out. And then in a well-known scene that we just heard read for us, God speaks to him from this bush. And in the process of doing that, God reveals himself as three things. He reveals himself as the consuming fire in verses two to six. Moses comes closer to him and he says, take, stop. He stops Moses from getting too close. He says, don't get too close. You're going to be in trouble. In fact, he tells him, take off your sandals for you're on holy ground. And later in the passage, when Moses finally really recognizes what's going on, he cowers in fear. Verse 6, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. This became like a, whoa, cool to, oh my gosh, what is going on here? He was overwhelmed by the holy presence of God and he was afraid. Because when you come into the presence of God, the consuming fire, fear is the only rational response. The theme of God's unapproachable holiness is always in view in Exodus. God is a being of such perfect holiness that sinful man cannot approach him. Just to be near a manifestation of his presence struck fear into Moses' heart. God is not a trifle or a teddy bear. He's a consuming fire. But there's more. There's more. God is not just a consuming fire. God also reveals himself as the compassionate savior in verses seven through nine. In fact, in verse eight, he he declares to Moses what he's going to do. I'm going to rescue my people. He says, verse 8, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good land flowing with milk and honey. I am going to save my people. And he sandwiches that promise in between two statements of strong, heartfelt, empathetic compassion. Verse 7, he says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. In verse 9, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians impress, uh, oppress them. God sees his people. He, he hears them. He knows what they're going through, and he cares about it personally and deeply. And so the consuming fire who may not be approached is seen to be the one who is approaching his people. How is that going to work? How can the God who can't be approached approach to save us? Well, Moses learns thirdly that he's got a role in this. God is not only the consuming fire, the compassionate savior, but he's also the commissioning sender. In verse 10, he says, Moses, I've got a job for you. You're going to go. I'm going to save my people, but you're going to go be my spokesman. You're the one through whom I'm going to work. Having, having announced what he will do, what God will do, he now tells Moses what he, Moses, is going to do. Moses has a role to play in God's plan. And, and so this, this idea of sending a mediator to accomplish his task now for the first time in the book of Exodus takes front and center stage. And it's actually the, the role of a mediator in God rescuing his people is never going to leave center stage from this point on. I mean, it's really interesting when you think about it. Chapter 2 ended with God saying he's going to fulfill his promise to rescue his people from Egypt. Okay, so chapter 3 opens. What's he going to do? Answer? Nothing in Egypt, which is a little weird when you think about it. I thought you were going to rescue your people from Egypt. No, no, no. The scene shifts miles and miles away to Midian. 
And the side of a mountain out in the middle of nowhere was one particular shepherd. God's call of Moses is the central point. God, the consuming fire, will approach his people through a mediator. Well, had the story ended here, it would have been a helpful, informative piece of of information to understand the book of Exodus, and we would have just moved on. But the story doesn't actually end here, does it? Moses' encounter with the burning bush, uh, with God at the burning bush, did not end with a simple, here I am, Lord, send me, and off he went to obey God. Actually, what ensues for the rest of chapter 3 and like half of chapter 4 is a lengthy, I guess we can call it a conversation. It's not really a conversation. It's not really much of a dialogue. It's an exchange, a verbal exchange between Moses and God. But what it really is, is Moses trying desperately to twist and turn, to contort himself into pretzels, to bob and weave and do whatever he can do to get away from what God just told him to do. Moses gets this encounter of God, the consuming fire, the compassionate savior, and the commissioning sender, and he wants nothing to do with it. In fact, the whole rest of the chapter is sort of typified in verses 11 to 12. Moses gives a response, God gives a response, and that kind of frames everything that comes after. In chapter 11, or sorry, verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Paraphrase, God, you've got the wrong guy. Right? You've got the wrong guy, which is kind of crazy on the face of it, right? Like, you may be omniscient and all-knowing and all that, but let me help you out here. You've made a bad choice. <laughs> I want nothing to do with this. Who, who am I? No, no, that, that's whatever that is. It's way too big for me. I'm just a dude. <laughs> Married, got kids, work in the family business. I'm just, who am I? Go find somebody impressive and big and powerful for your thing. God's response is gracious. He says, I will be with you, <laughs> And here's the sign. When you lead the people out of Egypt, you're going to bring them right back here to this mountain, and I'm going to speak to you directly, and they're going to hear it. That's how they'll know I'm sending you. So Moses, I'm going to be with you. Now that exchange kind of typifies everything that comes next. The whole next uh, rest of chapter 3 and half of chapter 4 can be summarized into three objections that Moses makes and three answers that God gives from verse 13 all the way through the remainder of chapter 22, or chapter, uh, verse 22, sorry, chapter 3. Moses says to God, first objection, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? His objection is, is really one of authority. He's saying, I don't, I don't have any authority to go to the Israelites back in Egypt. I haven't been there for years. They don't know who I am. So, like, if I just go say come out and, like, leave, where are they going? They're they're not going to listen to me. God, I've got no authority. See, you've got the wrong guy. God says, in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Drop down to verse... um, We'll just continue reading verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God here responds to Moses' first objection by revealing himself for the first time in the Bible by name. 
He says, this is my proper name. It's four consonants in Hebrew because Hebrew didn't have vowels. Um, the rough English equivalents are Y-H-W-H, a, a, a name that is almost certainly pronounced Yahweh. God says, that is my proper name. And it's a name that means in Hebrew simply, I am. <laughs> That's why our English has translated it that way. And, and remember that this is at a time when a person's name was understood to say something about the fundamental nature of who they are, about their character. So God says, here's who you tell the people has sent you. I am. Because it's as if there's nothing more fundamental God can say about himself than I exist because I'm the ultimate existence. <laughs> I'm the only one who doesn't owe his existence to someone or something else. I have always been. I always will be. Everything else in the entire universe is ultimately the effect that owes its existence to some other cause or set of causes. But if you keep following the cause and effect chain all the way back into what seems to you to be infinity, what you find is it's not infinity. What you find is me. I'm infinity. I have always existed. That's who is speaking to you. That's the authority, Moses. So the objection, Moses has no authority, but Yahweh has ultimate authority. I'll make up for your deficiencies. Well, this doesn't assuage Moses. Chapter 4, verse 1, we get the second objection. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. By the way, some of you know this. If you look in your English Bibles and you see there where it says, uh, the Lord did not appear to you, and the word Lord there is in small caps, that's the proper name of God, Yahweh. So every time you see the Lord in those small caps, you can just substitute in your mind Yahweh because in the Bible, that's actually his proper name. So this objection simply amounts to, I have no power to make them listen. I have no power to make them believe. What if I tell them who sent me and it's just like they're, they're not gonna buy it? Why would they listen to me? I'm a nobody. They don't even know me. I've been gone forever. I just show up and they're gonna listen to me? God, you've got the wrong guy. In response to this objection, God gives Moses the power to perform three miracles, to turn his staff into a serpent and back again, uh, to afflict him. He has him stick his hand in a robe and he pulls it out and it's covered with a nasty skin disease and he has him put it back in the robe and then it's healed. And then lastly, he says, if they still won't listen to this, you take some of the water of the Nile, pour it on the ground and it will become blood. He said, I'm giving you the power to perform miraculous signs so that through you, I will provide the power necessary to make them believe. And the Israelites will listen to you, Moses. It'll work. It'll work. Once again, God says, where you are inadequate, I'm supplying my own adequacy. Well, I have no idea what it was like to experience those miracles. That seems pretty cool to me, but Moses is still not assuaged. He comes up with a third and final objection, chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I, do you, it, it's almost comical. I'm not eloquent. God, I've never been eloquent. You know, even as you've been listening to me for the last couple minutes, can you not hear that I'm just not good with words? <laughs> I'm not the right guy. In other words, I don't possess sufficient natural talent. I don't have the right gifting set. I'm not a sharp enough person. For this job, God. You're telling me to go into the courts of one of the world's most powerful kings and make these strong declarative speeches. Man, you need a speechwriter, God. Not me. You need somebody who's good at making speeches. <laughs> That's not me. I'm, I'm the wrong guy. I don't 
possess the requisite skill set. God's response at this point initially is, I will be with you. I will give you all the words that you need uh, to say. God says, don't, don't you think I know that? Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who's made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, Moses, I know all of your skills. Like, thank you for informing me. Like, where would I be without you? I, you're saying you weren't put together with the right skill set. Who do you think put you together? Like, I know all of this. I know who I'm calling. I'm calling the right person. Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you shall speak. And then in just a couple of verses later, as Moses is still reticent, God is going to make a concession and say, fine, you've got an older brother, Aaron. He's good at speaking. I'm going to let him work with you. I, I, will, I will give you something that you feel like you need. You're not getting off the hook. You're still going to be the spokesman. God actually says, um, you will be like God to your brother Aaron, meaning Aaron's not going to hear directly from me. You are. You're going to have to speak because that's what I'm sending you to do. But Aaron can be the spokesman. And so in all three of these cases, God is meeting Moses' objections about his insufficiency with promises of God's own sufficiency. In every case, Moses uses his inadequacy as an excuse to get out of what God is calling him to do, and in every case, God responds to Moses' inadequacy with a promise of his own adequacy. You see, Moses isn't, to, isn't supposed to go do something for God. The picture that's being so clearly painted here is that Moses is being told by God to join into something that God is already doing. Moses is merely like a glove. God is the hand that's going to fill it. <laughs> People will only see the glove. They'll only see Moses, but it's God that's going to be directing and providing all the strength and the power for what is going to happen. By the way, notice that there is no self-esteemism here, as we might call it, in God's response. You know, Moses is like, God, I just don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. God doesn't come along and say, dude, don't be so down on yourself, man. You've got to believe in yourself. Come on, I believe in you, Moses. I'm talking to you from a burning bush, right? If I believe in you, can't you believe in yourself? You've got what it takes, dude. There's none of that in here. There's also none of the kind of salvation by education mindset that's so prevalent in our modern context. You know, if you just get another degree, or if you get enough skill, or you get enough training, or you get enough adequate coaching, you know, then you can do anything. If you can't do it now, it's only because you set some goals, try harder, hook up with somebody who can show you how it's done, and man, you can achieve anything. God doesn't tell him to go practice his authoritative presence when he says, God, they're not going to listen to me. He doesn't tell him to dress for success and become a power person. He doesn't show him how to be an influential person. When he says, I can't speak, he doesn't tell him to go take rhetoric lessons. He simply says, I will be with you. I will be with you. God's reply to Moses indicates that God is neither Moses' coach nor his cheerleader. He's a consuming fire. He's a compassionate savior. He's a commissioning sender. And he is telling, he's not asking, he's telling Moses to go play the part in his plan that God has designed for Moses to play, and God will provide the power. You see, God regularly calls his people to join in his thing. That's true for us as well. Because actually, we're living out the same plan that's, that started back in the book of Exodus. Now, we're at a very different point in redemptive history. 
of God sending Moses to Egypt to rescue Israelites from Egyptians, and he's clearly not sending us to rescue people from other people. The context is totally different. And yet, and yet, the story is the same. It's been advancing throughout the ages, and as modern-day Christians, we're called to participate in the exact same plan of redemption that God was starting here with Moses. Not just a plan to redeem one people group from slavery, but that becomes a word picture of God's efforts to redeem all people from our slavery to sin through the ultimate mediator, his son, Jesus Christ. And God calls us as a church to join him in that. We started here at Harvest this, this fall, just a few Sundays ago, by walking all of you through and, and in our family gathering where uh, our members kind of gather uh, three times a year to talk about what's going on in the church. Our elders shared a lot about where we're sort of at as a church. We're kind of starting this year looking at what's going well in our church and what we can celebrate and some areas where we really think God wants us to grow. And one of those areas that we've been talking about is our desire to be a more effective conduit for sharing the gospel to people right here in our community as a church. That's something that God calls every Christian to participate in, together as one body, as well as individually. A couple of Sundays ago, Jordan preached a sermon about our vision for evangelism here at Harvest, and it was helpful because it emphasized that, that our vision, we don't think this is ours, we actually think this is coming from the Bible, is that evangelism, sharing the gospel with people, is not a matter of like going and doing something for God, it's a matter of joining God in what he's already doing. It's the belief that God is already working in people's hearts, and how can we participate in that? Rather than ginning up the effort to go start an awkward conversation, maybe I don't know how to finish or people don't want to have, and try to make something happen for God. That's very much what's happening in this passage. God is meeting Moses' inadequacy with his own adequacy. Moses, this is my mission. You have a part to play in it. And God's interaction with Moses is instructive when we feel inadequate for the tasks that he's called us to as well. You see, it's never been about my adequacy, my insight, my patience, my degrees, my knowledge of how to answer every question that somebody might ask about the Bible or anything like that because it's not about my ability to make things happen for God. It's about joining God in what he is doing and seeing his power, as the Apostle Paul puts it in the New Testament, made perfect through my weakness, not my adequacy, through my weakness. That's the lesson Moses is learning here. And so Christian question for us specifically this morning. What is God calling you to do today that you're not doing because of your own fears and inadequacies? I've got my mental list in my head. I think if we're honest, we all have that list. Moses' role was to trust God's adequacy and move forward in faith. But here's the interesting thing we're still not yet at the end of the story. We're still not yet at the climactic moment in this book. We've seen these three objections. We've seen God answer them. Now the question is, how does Moses respond? How does Moses respond? I skipped over the verses a moment ago. Let me go back to them now. Chapter 4, verse 13. God has answered Moses' third and final objection. I'm not a good speaker. God says, I'll be with your mouth. I'll give you the words. Don't worry about it. And Moses says, I really think this is the climactic moment in the passage. Moses says to God, verse 13, Oh my Lord, 
please send someone else. Most of your English translations say something like that. The one Bible scholar pointed out the, the, the literal kind of rendering of the Hebrew words here, because this was originally written in Hebrew. Moses sort of says something like, Lord, send whom you will send. It's kind of open-ended and a little bit vague. But essentially the point is this, and this is what all the English translators who are scholars themselves, they've realized, is that what he's really, what he's really saying here is, fine, have it your way. Like literally, that's what Moses, the man of God, says to God Almighty at the burning bush. Fine, have it your way. Send who you want to send. I'm out of excuses. I can't think of anything else to say. One by one, God knocked Moses' excuses down patiently by saying, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to give you what you need. There's no more excuses. But does that change Moses' heart? No. No, it doesn't. Not yet. Even though he's experienced miraculous power, even though he's witnessing a burning bush not burning, even though he's had all these experiences that sometimes we can be tempted in a modern context to say, wow, that would be cool. I wish I could see something like that. I would be changed if I saw that. I'm not sure I would because I'm looking at Moses and he wasn't. He's seeing all of this, but you know what? Here he is, chapter four, verse 13. He doesn't want any more a part of God's plan than he wanted way back at the beginning of chapter three. None of God's promises and even his miraculous power have changed Moses' heart. He still wants nothing to do with, God, with what God is commissioning him to do. And God's response to Moses' heart is significant. The very next verse, 14. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. Okay, that's heavy. <laughs> that's big. Like, this is now the climactic moment. What's, what's going to happen here? You see, God's been patient with Moses, but his patience is now at an end. Moses is, he's, he's refusing God's call. Doesn't that sound pleasant? <laughs> we have so many ways that we can use language to kind of dull the sharp edges of our own sin and disobedience, don't we? Moses is struggling to embrace God's call. No, let me try again. Moses is disobeying God, despite God's repeated patience. He's just saying, I want nothing to do with this. And let's be even more clear. What is another word? What is a Bible word for willfully disobeying what God has commanded us to do? Anybody got any guesses? I just heard like 50 people say it. <laughs> Sin. Moses is sinning right in front of our eyes in the pages of scripture. And God is justly angry with him for it. This is the great problem in the passage. I mean, this, this is, when it says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses, that's a big problem, especially if your name is Moses. What, what, what do I do when my sin results in the just wrath of God toward me and my sin? How is that, can, somehow that has to be fixed, that has to be resolved. How does it get resolved in this passage? Well, this is where the, the passage gets really interesting because initially it kind of doesn't look like it is resolved. God at this point says as a concession, fine, I'm going to send Aaron with you, but you're still not off the hook. Like you still need to be the spokesman. 
So your brother Aaron's in Egypt. I'm going to tell him in a vision to come meet you. You head to Egypt to meet him partway. Tell him everything I told you. And you guys go off and do what I've called you to do. Well, as the narrative continues in verse 18, it kind of looks like the story just moves on. Chapter 4, verse 18, Moses goes back to his father-in-law and says, hey, I've got to go back to Egypt. Father-in-law says, that's cool. So Moses grabs um, his wife and kids, a detail that's going to become really important in just a second, and starts heading off to Egypt. So he's obeying God, right? <laughs> Moses is doing what God told him to do. Well, kinda. Kinda. Has his heart changed from verse 13? Has God's anger been abated from verse 14? Doesn't look like it, not yet. What's really going on here is that Moses is sort of, you know, he's, he's given the answer of a, a man who's been defeated in debate. This is not the, the, yes, Lord, here I am, send me of the willing servant. This is the fine, have it your way. I'm trudging off to Egypt. Not a place that I want to go. In fact, God tells him in verses 21 to 23, it's going to be conflict. He says, you're going to go, you're going to talk to Pharaoh, perform all these miracles, but I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. And then you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so that epic struggle between Pharaoh and God over whose boss that we talked about last week, Moses is being told by God ahead of time, this is what it's going to be, and you're going to be right in the middle of it. This is messy. This is conflict. This is confrontation, something most of us hate. And Moses is walking right into it, and he knows it. Goodbye, Midian. Goodbye, comfortable life of raising a family, doing your thing, working the family business, being at peace, you see, the life of God's servant was going to go through a very rough road. Now, it was going to lead to a greater glory, but it was going to get a lot harder before it got better. And isn't that a model of the Christian life? The promise that God will take us to heaven, but walking through this world is a wilderness journey. It often gets a lot harder before it gets better. Moses moves, but with reluctance. We know this because of how the resolution of the story finally comes. And it comes in verses 24 to 26. Far and away, the most bizarre part of this story. But on retrospect, I think it's the key to understanding everything God is trying to communicate in these two chapters. Let me just read these verses where just a couple of details are given, no context, and it seems bizarre. Let's just read them. We'll walk back through them. Exodus 4, verses 24 to 26. Moses is on his way to Egypt. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, God, let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. After that, the story picks up and Moses meets Aaron to go off to Egypt. What in the world did we just read? <laughs> what is that doing in there? I'm, 
I'm not going to lie. I, I sat down Monday and had my first careful read through this passage in a while. I, I went through it last year in a Bible read through. I forgot that was even in there. What in the world is this? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, we're only given three details. That's deliberate in the Bible, by the way. Every detail begs like a dozen questions. What's going on? What's the background? Who knew what when? And we're purposely not given that. The Bible does that sometimes. It's, I think it's kind of God's way of saying, don't worry about the backstory behind this. Just focus on what this scene contributes to the message of the passage. So here's all we're told. Three things. First of all, God meets Moses to put him to death. Secondly, his wife Zipporah circumcises one of their sons. And thirdly, God relents and Moses lives. That's what happens. How are we to understand this? Let's start with the first one. God meets Moses to put him to death. What? You see, if you're accustomed to what we might loosely call the Sunday school Moses, stories of how Moses was the great man of God who met God on the mountain, all of which is true, by the way, but that's what he became. This is the backstory before he was that representative of God to the Israelites. But if we're accustomed to thinking of Moses as the righteous man of God who never sinned, then we just haven't really read the Old Testament very closely. Because both here and then even later in Deuteronomy, Moses makes it plenty clear that he sinned, and that's why he wasn't allowed into the promised land. But we've already seen Moses' sin in this passage. And here, God is meeting him to put him to death. You see, the question goes, what happened to God's anger at Moses back in verse 14? Where did it get resolved? Well, this passage tells us it hadn't gotten resolved. Moses is trudging off to Egypt, but he's only obeying on the outside. Deep down inside, he still wants nothing to do with this, and he is as rebellious against what God wants him to do as ever. And that's sin. And the wages of sin is death. And so God meets him to put him to death, probably by striking him with some sort of illness that incapacitates him, and he is about to die from it. That's when the second detail comes in. His wife, Zipporah, no idea how she knew what was going on, we're not told. But clearly, she understood that there's a problem. She circumcises one of their sons. Now, immediately, if you're um, an Israelite, you would have said, whoa, wait a second. Wait a second. Moses had a son who wasn't circumcised? That's not supposed to be that way. God had told the Israelites back in the book of Genesis, like 400 years earlier, circumcise your male children eight days after they're born. That was a clear command of God. He says you're to do this all the time. Moses has at least one son who's not been circumcised. He hadn't done that. Why? We don't know. We're not told. We are told he didn't do it. Yet another example, in addition to the one we just read about, of how Moses is not, at this point in his life, fully following through completely on living with God. We can speculate, maybe all that time in Midian, (laughs) away from the people of God and, and the memory of God, maybe he just got lax. I don't know. Point is, he hadn't done it. This is a sin for an ancient Israelite. Now, his wife Zipporah steps in and saves the day, literally, for him. 
probably because Moses is incapacitated at this point and can't circumcise his son like he's supposed to. She steps in and does it for him, and then in an act that would have been understood very clearly culturally, she takes the blood of the circumcision and touches Moses' feet with it. That was a way of identifying Moses with the action. She was essentially, she's interposing herself between God who's judging her husband and about to kill him, and then the husband who is sinning and saying, let me obey for him and then apply that obedience to him. Then, the third detail, Amazingly, God accepts her action. He accepts Zipporah's substitutionary act of obedience on behalf of Moses, and he relents. And he relents. Moses ultimately lives because of his wife's substitutionary act of obedience. And all of a sudden now, if you know the story of Exodus, maybe the pieces are starting to fall in place a little bit. In this, at first, bizarre scene that just seems like it's dropped in the middle of the text and we get no details on it. What we actually see is Moses about to pay for his sin with his life, but he is saved from God's just wrath against his sin when his wife steps in and interposes herself as a mediator between him and God. She obeys God for Moses in his place and applies the blood of her obedience, which came from her son, incidentally to Moses, and God accepts her obedience as if it was Moses' own obedience, and the wrath of God is taken away. Moses recovers, he lives, and he moves on. You see, what's happening here is that the mediator, the great mediator, the man of God, Moses, who is going to stand between God and the people, before he can do that, before he can be a mediator, he needs a mediator. He needs a mediator for his own sin. I've titled this morning's sermon, A Mediator for the Mediator. Zipporah's actions foreshadow Moses' own role later in Exodus where he will interpose himself between a perfectly holy God and the sinning people whom God is about to wipe out and he will turn God's just wrath away from them. It also foreshadows how his brother, the first high priest, would be consecrated with the blood of a sacrificial animal, an animal who is killed, and then its blood would be applied to his ear and his thumb and his toe as a symbolic way of identifying the animal's death with Aaron's death to atone for Aaron's own sin so that he could then serve as a mediator, a high priest, between God and the people. You see, even the mediators need a mediator because no mediator is perfect until we get to Jesus in the New Testament. Because ultimately, all of this calls attention to the real problem. Everyone is a sinner, and the best mediators need somebody to mediate for them to deal with the sin that is at the heart of their own problem that's gonna make the whole building fall over if I just obey God out of my own efforts, but when my heart is far from him. How am I gonna get my heart's sin dealt with? Well, I'm gonna need a better mediator than Aaron because he's got sin too. And he needed an even better mediator than Moses. He needed his wife to save his bacon. Thank God she did. She wasn't even Jewish. She was Midianite. There's a beauty in that. God accepts her faithful obedience as the mediator for the great mediator. But you see, all of this points ahead to the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who said, the Bible says of him in Hebrews chapter 7, It was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest who is holy, innocent, and totally unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus had no sin that needed atoning for 
He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself on the cross. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Jesus Christ is the mediator we all need, and this whole story is pointing ahead toward that. You see, when Jesus' blood shed on the cross, the blood of his obedience, which is his own, the blood of God's son, just as the blood of Moses' son was applied to him to atone for his sin, so the blood of God's son can be applied to you and me, and that atones for our sin. That's the point of all of this. Friends, it's fascinating how the story ends. The last few verses, the closing verses of chapter four. Moses recovers, continues the journey meets his brother Aaron along the way, just as God said he would, tells him everything that God told him to say, and the scene closes with Moses and Aaron following God, serving his glorious larger purpose, and entering into what God is doing to bring his people into the promised land. Now, why the transformation? The scene started with Moses just comfortable in Midian, minding his own business. Two chapters later, we see him moving off to obey God. Why the transformation? Why didn't Moses die in his sin? Why is he here in God's good graces, living an incredibly purposeful life, even after all of his fear and doubt and reluctance? The text tells us why. Because he had a mediator. It's because he had a mediator. Somebody interposed their obedience on his behalf. The Israelites would soon need Moses to be their mediator, but he needed one first because that's what we all need, to leave the small, sometimes comfortable, but ultimately unfulfilling life we can all have in our own Midians and actually fulfill God's call on us to join in what he is doing and mediate his grace to a dying world through proclaiming the gospel. As a church this year, this is one of the things we really want to focus on. How is God calling us to mediate the grace of the gospel to the neighborhood and the families and the friends right around us. So, members of Harvest, can I ask you, when I say that, what does that do to your emotions? What what does that call up? The idea of like, oh, we're going to talk about sharing the gospel with people that can be uncomfortable. I can tell you what it does to my emotions. Maybe you're different. I immediately feel a mix of things. There's a little bit of shame because I know I have failed to do it. I immediately think of people who I should be praying for and reaching out to that I don't. So there's some sort of shame because I know I fail. There's a fear of my world becoming a lot less comfortable. I hate to admit that, but it's true, so I'm just going to say it. Like, this might make my world more uncomfortable to obey God in this area. And I don't like that. I like Midian. My Midian's pretty cool. So there's a little bit of fear. There's definitely some dread at trying to make something happen spiritually in other people's lives, and I know I can't do that, so is that what we're talking about here? This passage is like part two of that sermon we preached a couple weeks ago. Sharing the gospel is about joining with God and what he's already doing, but maybe like Moses, and maybe like me, you find that even knowing that God is doing it and it's not all up to me still doesn't completely assuage your heart. Maybe you're still like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure I want any part of that. Good luck, pastor. Go do it. (laughs) Find somebody else. Here I am, Lord. Send him. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) 
But you see, this passage acknowledges that like Moses, even when we know that it isn't up to us alone, but it's up to God, we can still be left with that strong resistance and that sin. And so like Moses, we need a mediator. So can I just wrap up our time this way? Friends, if you're here, this whole passage is ultimately in the flow of Scripture pointing to the role that Jesus plays in actually forgiving our sins. If you're here this morning with us, and maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus as your personal Savior, like you've never actually banked your eternal destiny on him, confessed sin, and asked his grace to cleanse it from you, then the Bible's message to you is clear. As the New Testament puts it, God is calling all men everywhere to repent. God is asking you, he's telling you, come, find life in my son. I've provided the way of salvation. And I encourage you to take him up on that offer. Your eternity is at stake. And if you'd like to talk to somebody about what that means, I encourage you to talk to either a Christian maybe that you know and are comfortable with and came to church with, or come talk to myself or one of the other church elders right after the service. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to start a relationship with Jesus as the consuming fire and the compassionate savior that he is. And friends, if you are a Christian, especially if this is your church home, let me encourage us to think about this. This is, this is where we're at. Just yesterday, we, we had a meeting of, of our ministry staff and our elders. We're working through some of what do we, what are we, how do we think God is leading us to lead our church in this next season of, of time, just moving on further with some of the plans we've already shared with you. And, and that meeting really, it was a good meeting, but it ended in a really sweet time of all of us realizing, you know what, deep down inside, we've got to deal with our hearts, not just our plans. We're going to deal with our hearts. And we just ended in an extended time of prayer where we're just confessing as a group whatever we needed to confess to God and asking him to forgive us and to cleanse us and to start to use us because that's getting down to shoring up the foundation that's going to make the whole building stand. And so if you're a member of this church, can I just invite you into that dark tunnel of confession because it comes out in a brighter future. That, that dark tunnel that we as your church leaders have already started down. I'll invite. God can command. I just invite. So I'm just inviting you um, to join us in that. Whatever your thoughts and feelings and misgivings are about obeying God's command to be a light of the gospel to the people around you. Maybe it doesn't begin with starting to go do something or try to obey God more. Maybe it just starts with saying, I need a mediator to deal with whatever the sin is in my life that may be keeping me from that. And that could look different for every person. But whatever it is, we know what to do with our sin. We're Christians. We confess it to our Savior. And if we do, the Bible promises he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from that sin. And friends, that's where life starts. That's where it's gonna start for us as a church, not through our plans, our programs, or our activities, or even our well-intentioned efforts. It's gonna start when the mediators experience the mediator who alone can forgive our sins. Amen? I want to invite our music ministry team back up and I'm going to pray for us. And they're going to lead us into some songs that approach God as the great I am. And let's just stand in awe of him and recognize that the consuming fire is a compassionate savior. Jesus, we come before you now asking for your mediating grace in our lives. Each one of us needs it more than we even know. I pray that you would make the need known to us as individuals, not other people's needs, my need for my mediator. And God, give us the heart to trust you as you have led us to trust you before. That as we confess sin, you're faithful and just to forgive it. I pray that whatever sins get in the way of my life and the other members of this church obeying you more fully, God, would you bring those to our minds? Would you give us the heart to lay them down before you? 
Would you forgive us? And through your substitutionary obedience, would you cleanse us? That we can be a people ready to say, yes, Lord, here we are, send us. We're scared to death, but send us anyway. We trust you. And so it's in your matchless name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us, please? And let's sing together.